welcome to Agatha Christie, She Watched, the spoiler-heavy look at the movie and TV adaptations of Christie's novels and short stories. I'm Bill Peschel of Peschel Press, and today we're talking about gas explosions, missing explorers, greed, and surly Irishmen. It's Taken at the Flood, the 2006 Poirot episode starring David Suchet as Percule Poirot. But before we get into it, let me introduce my partner in marriage, as well as crime of the fictional kind, Teresa Peschel. (laughs) Hello! (laughs) It's always such a pleasure to be here with you in your office under the stairs. (laughs) So, Taken at the Flood. I have not read the book. You have. So tell me, what do you think? Well, I want to start with, this book actually has two separate titles. So half the audience uh, will know the novel is Taken at the Flood, and the other half of the audience will know the novel is called There is a Tide. And both of those titles come from a speech that I think Brutus Brutus. gives somewhere in the midst of Shakespeare's play Julius Caesar. Where is it? I just saw it here in, oh, here it is. There is a tide in the affairs of men, which taken at the flood leads on to fortune. And then Poirot goes on to say, yes, but the tide sweeps in, but it also ebbs and may carry you out to sea. That's where the titles come from. It was, well, it was a very plot heavy episode. And I think this is one of those where you would have been better off not having read the novel. Reading the novel makes it a lot clearer the motivations and the number of people involved. But at the same time, this is one of the few novels where Agatha Christie really tied it into a very specific time period. Uh, She always wrote contemporaries and she paid attention to what was going on around her. But her books are largely timeless other than, uh, you know, odd cultural references. But Taken at the Flood and N or M are very, very specific for their time period. N or M is a Tommy and Tuppence novel, and it is in the early days of World War II with the Blitz, and no one knows what's going to happen, and everyone is going nuts. Right. Taken at the Flood was written in 1948, after World War II. Yes, after World War II, And uh, remember, books are written long before they're published. So she was probably writing this in 46, 47 before it was published in 48. Keep in mind that you had the Great War, which shook up the entire country like a snow globe, but they didn't have any bombings. Not much. They had Zeppelin raids on London, but not to the certainly not to the extent during the Battle of Britain. It, it, it was minor, all things considered. And then you had the Roaring Twenties and then the Great Depression and then World War II. And it shook up England even more thoroughly, like snow globes had been shaken and shaken and shaken and then smashed. And you're trying to put yourself back together. You've had bombing raids. You have demobilization. You have the returning soldiers, many of them who can't find jobs or they won't find jobs. There's a lot in this particular novel about the men who were wonderful in wartime and they couldn't fit back into a civilian society. You've got rationing and heavy taxation and death duties and it is very, very much of its time. And the Claude family is under intense pressure because of the death duties because of taxes, because of rationing, because their whole world has been turned upside down repeatedly. At the same time, the person they depended on the most, Gordon Claude, he had been traveling on war business and he had been overseas and he had a cruise ship romance, which everyone at the time knew was cruises could be fraught with peril for older gentlemen who were single. And he married a hot young lady from Ireland 
Uh, she was a widow. She was absolutely delightful and absolutely delicious. And he fell hard and he brought her back to London and he was going to introduce her to the family and remake his will to take care of his family. Then two days later, before anybody could get to London, because remember, this is in the middle of the war. This is in the middle of the Blitz. A bomb hits the house and kills him. But Rosaline, his new bride of two of just only a few day, only a few weeks, his new bride survives and she gets all the money. To make it worse, the clothes could have lived with Rosaline, but they cannot tolerate her brother because he is the one with his hands on the purse strings. He controls what Rosaline does and what she doesn't. So when they moved it back to about 1936, we have this wonderful scene with Poirot talking to uh, you know, Major Porter, Major Porter, who is setting out setting out the scene for why how how he lost his leg. All he did was he was sitting across the park watching the Claude family approach the house. And the reason why he was there is because he knew Rosaline Rosaline Claude's first husband, Robert Underhay. He knew him in Africa and he wanted to see who was this girl that Robert Underhay had talked about, whom he apparently had not met. He had heard about her, but he had not met her. Now, why do we have Underhay and the Claude family? We have two different names. No, Underhay was Rosaline's first husband, mm -hmm. the one that she was widowed. Oh, right, right. Okay. Because remember, if he's still alive somewhere, she couldn't legally marry Gordon Claude. Right. As you can tell, I watched the episode with her, but a lot of the plot really didn't hit home. So there's going to be a lot of <laughs> a lot of explanations going on here. So bear with me, please. So because we've moved back to 1936 or 1937, but anyway, before the war, we've moved back to the war. So and you get the usual compressions and changes of names, although some of it was really stupid making Kathy a Claude instead of a somebody who married in, which means Lionel is no longer Gordon Claude's brother, things like that. But Major Porter knew Robert Underhay in Africa, but apparently he never met Rosaline. He'd heard about Rosaline, but he'd never met Rosaline. And so he is sitting across the street in the park. And again, when you stop and think about this, you think, okay, if he was sitting across the street in the park while the Claude family is walking to the house and then the house explodes in this massive explosion. How come no, no one in the Claude family was damaged, but he managed to lose his leg as well as get some facial scarring? Well, it's the force of the blast going straight across the street. It doesn't, they're approaching the house from the side. They're walking down the sidewalk towards mm, it. So okay. I, can, I can see that. Okay. Cause it I looked to me that. like they were closer um, but they weren't on the front porch. If they were on the front porch. They would have been right in the middle of line it. of line of line of blast. But yes. So what they did is so there's Major Porter and he's watching and then the house explodes. You and see it was a gas leak because of a gas well, leak. Yes. Apparently leak. there was a gas leak causing the entire house to explode into this truly amazing heap of rubble. Gordon Claude died before he could change his will, which means that his new wife, Rosaline, inherited. Now, remember, the whole point of this story is that Gordon Claude has always taken care of his family, his two brothers and his sister and all of their relatives and shirt tail relatives and younger cousins and so forth. He's taken care of everyone. He is the one with the money. They are self-supporting, but whenever they need something extra or they run into trouble, Gordon picks up the tab and he likes it like that. And so the family is having some issues. And this is where moving the plot to 1937 is not as good as having it in 1947. 
because in 1937, what you see is a bunch of parasites. In 1947, you see people who not only depended on Gordon Claude for the extras, but now suddenly they are really hurting for a wide variety of reasons. Not associated with them. We're talking not, about the times. Yes, outside of the times. Rowley Claude is an excellent example. Here, he's just a grumpy farmer. Again, I really have to wonder sometimes about the choices. Normally, the Poirot series does absolutely wonderful costuming. And every time I see Rowley Claude pitching manure in a tie, I just can't. I just can't. Farmers, they, they would put on their, their suit jacket and their tie to go to church on Sundays or to go into town, but they are not going to be wearing a tie and nice pants while they are pitching manure. You take the damn tie off. And I just couldn't. I mean, everybody's always dressed impeccably, but they are dressed better than they would have been, mm -hmm. particularly in this case. But anyway, we can get back to the Claude family. We obviously have this wonderful scene where one of them, which which one was? It was the couple who's the husband. There's that wonderful scene with the husband in the pension plan. Oh, yes, that's Jeremy Claude. He is a lawyer and he is Gordon's brother. And he married Francis. In the novel, you're given a lot more backstory about Francis, but he married Francis. She is the daughter of a near-do-well baronet, the kind of man who was, you're either dining at the Ritz or you're moving from house to house in the middle of the night so that the bailiffs can't find you to uh, clap you in jail for debt thievery. She has a very laissez-faire attitude toward money because you either have it or you don't. And when you have it, you have a good time and you spend the money and you pay the bills. And when you don't have it, you just cope. And there was that wonderful scene because Jeremy is trying to tell his wife and she is much more practical. And she actually says, let me ask questions and you nod. Okay. Because he's finding it really difficult to admit that the firm had problems and I stole from the client's pension funds in order to cover losses. And now I can't cover it up. The economy has turned sour. I can't cover it up. And I don't have Gordon to ask for 10,000 pounds to cover this up. Right. So she says, I will find out if I'm my father's daughter after all, and goes to Rosaline to ask for money at this huge party, takes her off to one side to a room and negotiates a loan of 20,000 pounds, 10,000 uh, 20, pounds? 10,000 pounds. 10,000 pounds. She asks for 10,000 pounds because that will cover... Apparently, that will cover the cost. And remember, Rosaline is an incredibly rich widow. Gordon was a millionaire. And even with death duties and everything else, she's got an enormous, she's sitting on an enormous pile of money. And you feel sorry for Rosaline almost immediately because she is way out of her league. She is feeling overwhelmed. But she's a she's a nice person. She doesn't argue with Francis. You don't see anything about, uh, you know, how dare you talk to me? You should have earned your own damn money instead of marrying it like I did. Uh, you don't see any of that. And then, but then, at, and then afterwards, Francis is confronted by David. David. David is Rosaline's brother and he is anxious to control the purse strings. There's a lot of resentment in David, a lot of anger. He loathes the Claude family. And this is I think a wonderful piece of characterization, both in the novel and in the film, because he resents people who have what he didn't have. Right, he's an Irish and engineer. An Irish engineer. Road builder. He resents people who have what he didn't have. So even though it would be sensible to dispense small amounts of money to the clothes so they stop being troublesome, he won't give them anything and goes out of his way to agitate them, which is a really stupid thing to do, but it demonstrates his personality. He is the kind of person who has to shit in his own nest. Mm -hmm. He just 
has to. You know, he is the kind of person that if you say, if you push that button, the entire building will blow up and kill 55 people. He will, he will be the first in line to push that button to see what happens because he wants it. I'm thinking suddenly of a prototype joker. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, he wants to see the world burn because he's burning inside. He is not completely sane, I think. He's his own worst enemy. He is clever. He thinks on his feet. He's charismatic. He's good looking. You see why Lynn, who wants something dangerous and exciting, falls for him instead of boring, dull, rowly Claude, who does his duty. And there's this ridiculous speech later on where Lynn tells Rowley that she can't marry him because she's fallen madly in love with David, whom she barely knows and whom every single person who talks to her about him says He's a bad one, and you will end up with a restraining order and down at the at the battered women's shelter in short order. Oh, that doesn't matter. Happiness doesn't matter compared to love. And you think, wow, that's really stupid. Oh, yeah. Well, let's, let's go into that a little bit more because I, I just want to make the point that David's behavior to everybody, including to Poirot and the police, while he's being suspected of murder, is so intense and so offensive that I don't want to say it takes it, but it you can't get away from that. And it's like you're being verbally abused by somebody, and no matter how funny it is, and no matter how satisfying the story, there's still that residue of emotion from you just wanted to punch this guy or run away <laughs> so he doesn't or, punch you. Or you're looking away, at yeah. a bully. You're, yeah. you're watching a bully. Oh yeah, somebody who is really, really unpleasant, who goes out of his way to be unpleasant, even when it is stupid. And that is, in fact, they really amped up David in the film over the novel. But what they also did. In the film is they made every single member of the Claude family except Lynn, who is as the damsel, she is clearly, she can't be a, a nasty person. But they made the rest of the Claude family nastier. And Poirot, throughout this entire episode, he is angry and pissy at them. And, you know, some of it might be justified, but some of it really isn't. Remember, these are people who had been brought up their entire adult lives to know that if they really needed something, Gordon Claude would take care of it. He would take care of it. He would fix it. He would pay for it. And suddenly everything changed. And then Gordon married, you know, married this, 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 this hot young cookie. And then he died so fast that he couldn't change his will. And that meant that Rosaline got all the money and everything that they were counting on, plus losing Gordon. And, you know, again, novels can't tell you everything, but, you know, there's going to be grief, too. A lot of grief on the part of his brothers and sisters, his, his sisters-in-law, his nieces and nephews, where they look at Gordon and think, he's gone. He died suddenly. And everything that we thought we knew has changed. Let's look at Lynn's story. Now, does it change from the book? Because here she's a missionary coming from Africa, where she's been running this hospital for a couple of years. Oh, yes. Lynn has changed somewhat because originally she was a Wren. Remember, this is set after the end of the war when rationing was at its peak and death duties and taxes and everything else like that. So Lynn was a Wren. She was serving her country. She went around the world. She was in various war zones. She that was meant, actually under fire. And that she was in the military, like we have WACs, Women's Army Corps in the uh, U.S. So, but a Wren is the British equivalent of it? No, it's uh, Navy, Women's Royal Navy. Oh. And that's why they call them Wrens. I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. 
But she was a wren, and that meant she lived a wonderful, exciting, fabulous time. It was high stress. It was high energy. It was, you had a lot of hurry up and wait, I'm sure, it being the Navy. But at the same time, there are moments when you are 100% fully alive and hoping, please, please, please don't let this be my last day on earth. Please, please, please. <laughs> Let me live through this shelling. Let me watch people I know and care about die. The world is coming to an end. This is a lot of excitement. This is a lot of energy. And she liked it. She Mm -hmm. really liked it. And then she comes back to Wormsley Vale. And there's her boring boyfriend from back home, stolid, dull, rowley, who has been running the farm during the entire war. And it needed to be done. But Rowley suffers from survivor's guilt. And again, changing the date setting made you lose a lot of his complexity. Rowley suffers very badly from survivor's guilt. Uh, He had a partner on the farm and they tossed to see who would go to fight. His best friend, Johnny, and partner on the farm was killed within the first six months of the war. Rowley is intensely guilty about that. He's guilty about staying home when so many people went off to fight. And he feels even worse about the fact that his girlfriend went to fight and he stayed home growing turnips. So in the episode, she's coming back from Africa. And in both cases, Poirot diagnoses why she left because she She wanted excitement. She She wanted excitement. And by the way, let me warn viewers who have not watched this before. Lynn starts off as soon as she sees Rowley and announces and, and says, you were worrying about my virginity, weren't you? As though she is off getting it on with, uh, you know, great white hunters in South Africa. And I'm thinking, really? She isn't going to say that. You just aren't going to talk about that. And then later on, she brings it up and says, Rowley, I'm still a virgin because I still love you. My thought at that point was, you liar. <laughs> you liar and there was no reason for this i will say that the producers and the director showed some restraint because we did not get a gratuitous nudity or sex scene and i was really expecting it at that point that they would put lynn in bed with david that uh, you know he'd be doing her up against the wall (laughs) before racing off to catch the train to go to london to solidify his alibi but they didn't (laughs) for which we should all be grateful so there was a little bit of a romance arc in which lynn is attracted to david and who wouldn't be because he's a bad boy he says all the things that nobody else says he's hot and you compare him to boring rowley and you think wow they really did cast these actors very well because david of course is handsome he's brutally handsome brutally handsome with the scar looks like a farmer yeah rowley looks like a farmer (laughs) he's square and he's stolid um, he's square and blocky thinking about ned flanders here you know he took off his shirt and we got some non-gratuitous nudity because when it's a man of a man it's never gratuitous (laughs) And then you think, wow, you look damn good. Mm-hmm. But we never got that. Instead, what you see is this boring, stodgy man who stayed home and did boring but necessary work while Lynn went off to Africa to save the natives at a medical missionary. And I'm sure she was doing God's work. And it was tremendously exciting and tremendously fulfilling. But she would lived an exciting life. And if she marries Rowley, then it's a farm. Mm-hmm. it's cows and she doesn't want to do that which i think in the end when she decides to go back to africa there's this wonderful scene in which she faces off with rowley and, and finally tells him and he knew she wasn't in love with him for a while 
she and could it tell. Hurt him. And it hurt him, but he kept it inside, which is what his character does. Yes, his character does that. He starts choking her. You know, he starts strangling her. He, it's like all of the emotion comes out at once. And he is so angry, he loses control. And again, changing the date setting means that you don't see why he's under as much pressure as he is. He is under enormous pressure. He's under financial pressure, emotional pressure, everything you can imagine. And he just explodes. Everything comes out at once. And there's, of course, the fact that he realized that his other relatives, his other Claude relatives, were the ones who came up with the Enoch Arden blackmailing plot. And he's horrified by that. But at the same time, he sees it as if we can prove that Robert Underhay, Rosaline's first husband, is still alive, then the marriage is invalid and we get the money, which we need desperately. And he needs it desperately, too. Because you were saying about the pressure he was under in the book, you mentioned that he was under financial pressure because the farm was failing. And we don't get that in the episode. No, we don't get any of that in the episode. It, well, no, the farm wasn't failing, but because of the, I, I misspoke, but because of the immense pressure on, uh, with, with taxes and death duties, he was, he was not keeping his head above water, even though prices were good. And he was anticipating in a couple more years that the prices would fall out from the bottom of the farm market. And then he would be in worse financial straits than he was now and there's this famous joke about the farmer wins the lottery and somebody and you know he's asked well what are you going to do well i'm going to keep farming until the money runs out and then i'll see what happens yeah. <laughs> because you can lose a lot of money farming they did have a little bit more pressure for him because he was the farmer of the family and the other members they were in professions so he's not as upper crusty as them right and he knew they looked down on him because he wanted to work on the farm he didn't want to be a barrister yeah, he didn't want to be a barrister. That's Jeremy. He didn't want to be a doctor. That is Lionel. Lionel. He did not want to do that. He didn't want to be a millionaire industrialist. That's Gordon. He wanted to farm. He loved it. He was boring to Lynn. Mm -hmm. This is a movie that uh, was filled with great characters because the large woman in the pub, was that Mrs. Ledbetter? That's Mrs. Ledbetter. She doesn't like foreigners. She likes her routine. She's a vicar's widow. They added a cute little Pekingese dog, which she did not have in the novel. And I think that was a great addition because the dog Poirot, Count, hated yes. Poirot as well. <laughs> yes. And you had some very good comic moments between yes, them. Yes. The, uh, the dog is named Count Bismarck, by the way. And Poirot, who has been at the stag in the past, he knows who Mrs. Ledbetter is and he knows who that dog is and the dog knows him and it's a very cute Pekingese that's right but she Mrs. Ledbetter doesn't seem to recognize Poirot from the last time because no she, she saw she there's no reason for her to know him but she does pay attention and she is important because she confirms that Enoch Arden had a woman in his room she tells the police eventually that Enoch Arden was alive at a particular point, but, but uh, you find out towards the end that that was David Hunter in disguise, making it look like Enoch Arden was still alive so that his alibi was good. We even have to get into a little bit about that because Enoch Arden arrives in town and talks to David and gives him a offer he couldn't refuse. Enoch Arden earlier uh, in the episode. Enoch Arden shows up first talking to Rowley Claude on the farm. I'm looking for the stag. So Rowley has seen him and then he goes and checks in at the stag and sends a message to David Hunter. I have something that is of interest to you and they beat around the bush for a little while. But essentially Enoch Arden is asking for money from David on the subject of if you don't pay me off 
I will go public with the fact that Rosaline's first husband is still alive and it was a bigamous marriage. Somebody will pay me. Either you can pay me to be quiet or I will go to the clothes and they will pay me to jump up and down and make a big fuss. So which do you prefer? Right. And he asked for 20,000 pounds, which was huge money in 1937. And in fact, it is twice as much as Francis Claude had asked Rosaline for. For those of you who do not know who Enoch Arden is, they do mention it in the film, and it's of course mentioned in the text. This is from a Tennyson poem about a man who goes off to sea, and then he's considered lost at sea, and he comes back some years later and discovers that his wife has remarried his old rival. You know, it's been like five, ten years. She's remarried his old rival. His rival is raising his son, and they have several more children, and he has to decide, is he going to destroy her life, everyone's life, or is he going to go away? They all thought he was dead. And so he goes off and dies of a broken heart. Agatha chose that name very specifically because she knew that her better read audience would know the story very well because they all knew their Tennyson. And so that's why the name Enoch Arden, it's supposed to give everyone who comes into contact with him, it's an easy way of saying, oh, you are the husband, aren't you? Because why else would you choose that name? Mm -hmm. Right. So, so Raleigh goes and sees Rowley sees Enoch Arden, and then he goes to talk to Jeremy about this, because Jeremy is a barrister, well, and then he actually, sees the it's, picture. It's the uh, woman who runs the pub. She overhears the blackmail scheme. Oh, yes, and yes. And she tells Jeremy, no, sorry, she tell, She tells Rowley. She tells Rowley about it. And Rowley goes to see Jeremy and looks at a picture and then runs off to the pub. Yes, because without, he is sudden. Him. Yeah, he has suddenly realized who this man actually is. Because remember, he met him. Mm -hmm. He met him. And he sees this picture and he realizes that this man, Enoch Arden, is actually a relative of Francis's. He's Francis's older brother, a ne'er-do-well just like their father. And Francis has this lovely little speech about her brother later on in the film to Poirot about how Charles would take a Bentley on uh, to on test loan. it out. On yeah. an, on a test loan. drive a Bentley test and drive, drive a Bentley. around London. Yeah. Yes, drive around London, visit various expensive shops, buy things, writing checks, because everybody takes your check when you pull up in a Bentley. After a few days of this, you know, he'd be staying at the Ritz, and then after a few days of this, he'd have to give the car back, and then he would disappear with his stolen goods, which he would resell to his friends. So all this was part, the, the whole Enoch Arden subplot was a plot by the family to get money out of David. But Rowley wasn't involved in this, right. and this is where Rowley's temper came out, because he was angry at Jeremy and Francis. He knew that they were involved. He may not have known which cloud it was, Jeremy or Francis or both, but he knew that the family was doing this. You don't see this so much in the film, but he kind of likes Rosaline. Mm -hmm. He does kind of like Rosaline. He, again, you, you lose this in the film, but he thought of Rosaline and he thought of the calves he would send to market to be slaughtered. They're cute and they're pathetic and there's nothing you can do. It has to be done this way. Yeah. So he's very angry and he confronts Enoch Arden and we discover later that what happened is because you find that Enoch Arden is dead, but you discover later what happened is that Rowley punched Enoch Arden because he got a really snotty response in return. He punched him. But he recognized him for who he really is. For who he really was, and which was Francis's brother. And he punches Enoch really hard and he falls into the, the marble fireplace the surround and cracks his skull open. And what the film doesn't 
say. See, they tell you, oh, he was bashed in the head several times with the fireplace tongs. Well, what Rowley does, of course, is... No, they did They, they did, did show, show that. The they end, did show yes. that. That Rowley pulls him towards the middle of the rug, cleans up a little bit, and then bashes his head in further, because he's already dead, with the fireplace tongs, because that makes it look like David Hunter did it. Mm-hmm. And it then he has... Like murder than accident. Yeah, and he turned an accident into a murder, framing... David Hunter, which is not a nice thing to do. Then he goes off to Major Porter, whom he has heard of the story through probably Jeremy or somebody, that Major Porter knew who Robert Underhay was, and he bribes Major Porter into saying at the inquest that Enoch Arden was Robert Underhay. And then you get Rosaline saying, I know my husband, and that wasn't him. Yes, I've been with him day and night for two years. I've seen him take his daily bath. It's a wonderful speech. It's a wonderful speech. And a lot of the, the solution Poirot pulled out of his button, but his boutonniere vase, because at the end he says, that and you don't know if if rosaline told him this or not when they're sitting outside the church but apparently among other things david hunter knocked her up because she wasn't really his sister uh she was an irish housemaid he got her pregnant and then forced her to have an abortion and the only hint that you get of this leading up to this is when she when rosaline sings at the inquest you know robert underhay used to sing to me your baby's gone down with the plug hole as though your baby is so skinny and so malnourished that it washed down the bathtub drain mm-hmm. and i guess this is an abortion you know this is to give you a hint that uh, she was forced to have an abortion later on because this is the only mention of a baby that you lose until suddenly at the climax Poirot is saying oh David did this and David did this and David did this and David did this and by the way David had a torrid affair with the housemaid and got her pregnant and then forced her to have an abortion so that he would have an accomplice in the assassination plot in the explosion as well yes exactly and oh by the way they also give you a hint that an agatha never wrote this that david had been having an affair with his real sister with rosaline and that's why he was so upset that she married gordon claude because she had left him she had left him her first love And you think, ew, (laughs) especially because she had already been married to Robert Underhay, so he should have gotten over it. (laughs) And, and. But this is an occasion where where we have a a truly evil person who actually did it all, and in the end, you get to see him hanged. So it's a happy ending after all, but still. In a way, yes, it is a happy ending in a way because David got what was coming for him. But at the same time, you're watching this and thinking, wait a minute, Poirot suddenly deduces that the year or so before, and the timing here is really unclear, but Poirot suddenly deduces that David had, because remember, he was a mining engineer, he was a road building engineer, and so he was used to high explosives. He arranged for tunnels to be built, to be dug, to be blown up through mountains so roads could go through them or railroads. And he he mines the house and blows it all up in this enormous explosion and it's blamed on gas and nobody questions it until Poirot sends a note to Scotland Yard and suddenly in like a 24-hour turnaround or less, oh, the whole house had been mined with explosives as a forensic examination did this. You didn't do this after the explosion? Don't know what the time frame is. Six months Something like that. So the house would have been bulldozed, and and yet there's still evidence around that they said, oh. That they missed the first time around? But yes, apparently they did. CSI, 1936. 
exactly. And that made absolutely no sense. But they needed it in order to get to the solution. Yeah, they needed it to get to the solution. Another character that was thinned out was Major Porter. Rowley bribes Major Porter to say that Enoch Arden was Robert Underhay, because again, Rowley is desperate. The whole Claude family is desperate. Why does Major Porter do this? It was only a hundred quid. That's, you know, and in 1936, a hundred quid was a fair amount of money, but still it isn't that much money. And the only hint you get of this is that Major Porter is cadging cigarettes. But in the novel, like the rest of the Claude family, he's under enormous financial pressure. He lives in a single rented room. The only thing he has left is his club membership. That is going to be the last thing he gives up. He has gradually been selling everything he owns. When Poirot visits him in his one rented room, room he sees where rugs have been sold because the floor is a different color this is a man who is on the edge of financial ruin the very edge he is teetering on the edge and he is going to have to do something one way or another he takes rowley clothes money testifies falsely at the inquest and then realizes he's going to have to testify falsely at a criminal trial under oath and he can't do it so he shoots himself it's the only way out left for him and of course, this makes Rowley feel enormously guilty because he has actually caused the death of two people because he punched Enoch Arden, who then fell and hit his head on the fireplace surround. That was accidental, but he bashed head in to frame David Hunter. And then he bribed Major, uh, Major Porter to lie. And then Major Porter shoots himself. Rowley feels a lot of guilt. And I feel really sympathetic towards Rowley Claude. I really do. Yeah. Not so much towards Lynn. This was another change in the film, is that Lynn, instead of recognizing what's underneath, that Stillwaters really do run deep in this case, and he's a very passionate man, under, kept under very tight wraps, she says, oh, I'm going back to Africa. Which I think was all for the best. Which anyway. was probably all the for the natives. best, because she would have made him very unhappy. Yeah. They would have made each other very unhappy. On and the other hand, already... she's willing to accept a lot of abuse, because if she can accept David Hunter abusing her, she can accept being on a farm in the middle of nowhere for the rest of her life. That's right. That's right. And now, again, because of a change that they made in the film, Rosaline doesn't die. She does die in the novel. She is poisoned by David Hunter. Not for money, but basically so he can escape prosecution. And as Poirot keeps saying throughout, and he does this in the film, the shape was wrong. The motivations were all almost like backwards in a way. First, David Hunter wants the money, but there comes a point where he realizes he has to cut his losses. He has to kill Rosaline because if she talks, his schemes will be revealed and he'll end up in the dock and he'll swing from a rope. So he isn't killing her for gain. He's killing her for safety, but he is not able to push her into suicide because, of course, Dr. Lionel Claude turns out to be a major drug addict and, again, a very unpleasant character. And yet he wasn't in the novel. He was an addict in the novel, but he was he's an older man. He's been doctoring full time for years, absolutely overwhelmed. He's had some physical injuries and he became addicted as a result of trying to treat pain. But here, he's just a happy drug addict because, hey, drugs are cool and don't and doctors love doing drugs, don't they? 
And so he steals some of the Rosaline's morphine. Which is kept under lock and key by David. By to David. To control her. To control her. And no, Rosaline was not a morphine addict in the novel. He steals the morphine and that's why Rosaline doesn't die. Because he takes half the morphine and dilutes the rest of it. These are in small ampules. So she takes like 15 of them, but they only have the effect of three or four her yeah usual and dose. and i guess you know i i guess she used to be able to get morphine from a pharmacy like that and now my god <laughs> you have to grovel to a doctor to get any kind of pain meds at all and they're certainly not going to give you 25 morphine ampules at once i remember when my father was dying and we got morphine and the nurse was very very careful about this and after his death i watched her pour the morphine over kitty litter in a ziploc bag so that it would be completely gone mm -hmm. completely unusable by anybody and there he's got an entire case full of it different times dear different times i know so overall would you recommend this movie? Uh, yes, I would. But like some of the other adaptations, don't think about the novel. Think about the movie on its own. You have to watch the movie on its own. I think that it did need to be a little bit longer because we needed more conversation between people, particularly how Poirot learned more about what David Hunter actually did to Rosaline, the fake Rosaline, what he actually did, because otherwise he's pulling the solution out of his uh, boutonniere vase. I would have liked to see, have seen a little bit more of the enormous pressure the Claude family was under. They made them all very, the film made them all very, very unpleasant, except Lynn. And I didn't like the way Kathy was turned not just from a loopy spiritualist, but from a loopy spiritualist into a woman who was so hateful towards Rosaline that she would give her obscene phone calls. I don't know where that one came from, and I would have liked to have had at least a word or two of explanation of why she was doing that. Something about, I hate that woman so much that I'm behaving completely out of character. Again, you get no explanation for that at all when her sister, Adela, who is Lynn's mother, is much calmer about the whole thing. And Lynn's mother has this whole packet, a big manila envelope full of unpaid bills because that is how much pressure, financial pressure she is under. And this is one of those cases, it needed to be a little tighter written, it needed to be a little bit longer with some explanation, so you know why these people are doing these things. And I'm glad Lynn went off to Africa, because she would have made Rowley Claude very, very unhappy, and since Rosaline survived, maybe he'll marry Rosaline, who will appreciate him. Mm -hmm. But yes, it's worth seeing. It's worth seeing, as long as you don't compare it to the novel. I agree. It's a, it's a different feeling overall because like i said there's just so much negativity throughout the entire episode and again we get poirot isolated he was very isolated even though we keep hearing about oh he has friends here and he has friends there as though your friends don't matter at all in your emotional life and i don't like that sometimes i think hollywood tries to have it both ways you have to be single and independent and free and not tied down by a spouse and children. You cannot have that at all. You have to have you have to have friends who you can walk in and out of their lives. And yet at the same time, if you don't have if you aren't tied down by a spouse and children, then you're going to be miserable. Pick one. Because in this one we have uh, Poirot has a relationship with Lynn. Yes. And he, he had a relationship with Lynn's father, Mr. Marchmont, who uh, is, of course, long dead. And apparently he also knows Jeremy Claude. He knew the Claude family through Lynn's father. He knew of them. He knew them. And yet apparently those relationships mean nothing. 
They are completely meaningless relationships. That's why Poirot is so lonely and so isolated, despite the fact that he has a friend in every single town in England. Unlike Miss Marple, who has all her family around her. Yes, Miss Marple, who is a spinster, has a thousand relatives everywhere. Wherever she needs a relative or a friend, she has one. Poirot is the same. He doesn't have relatives, but he has people he knows, friends he has, every single place imaginable. And yet that is somehow not enough that he is lonely and isolated. And all I can think of is he's not. Mm -hmm. He's not lonely and isolated. Wherever he goes, people know him. Yeah. But there you are. There you are. Well, we've come to the end of another episode. Thanks so, for joining us in the little office under the stairs. And if you want to come in next time, we're going to be talking about the 2008 opening of Series 11 for Poirot, Mrs. McGinty's Dead. But before we close, I want to remind everyone that Bill and I are going to be at the Peach Festival in Wyoming, Delaware. That is Saturday, the 6th of August, 2022. So if you are in central Delaware on Saturday, the 6th of August, 2022, please, if you want to come by and talk about Agatha Christie, we'll be, our canopy will be in the sea of canopies at the Wyoming Peach Festival. Well, you might as well talk to them about books, 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 which is going to be September 17th. By the time this comes out, it may actually be relevant. Or Bookstore Romance Day. If nothing else, just go to specialpress.com. We have the list of appearances onto the side, so you can see exactly where we're going to be and when. And then you can ask any questions that I wasn't able to answer. Right. So this is another episode of Agatha Christie. We wa She watched. Not we watched. She watched. Even though we both watched. Even though we know, but you're the star, so it's, it's She Watched. And we'll be seeing you at the movies. Bye-bye. Bye. Agatha Christie. She watched is Teresa Peschel and Bill Peschel. Produced by Bill Peschel. Theme song, Call to Adventure, by Kevin McLeod. New episodes come out every week wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us by going to anchor.fm backslash mystery and leaving a five-star rating and review, and by helping to spread the word. To advertise on Mystery She Watched, email peschel at peschelpress.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to Peschel at PeschelPress.com. And thank you for listening.